0: Watching this thing
1: Hello and welcome everybody. It's another episode of Africa's a country talk, streaming as always every Tuesday at six PM Central African time. If you don't know who I am, I'm William Shoki, and I'm streaming from Cape Town, South Africa.
0: And I'm Sean Jacobs, and I'm streaming from Cape Town, South Africa. This is real, no, this no joke. This is jokes. real. This is real. So and watch out! What's gonna happen right now? Boom!
1: Look at, that. <laughs> Look at that! Look at that! Look at that! Who's that? Who's this?
0: Because it's uh, <laughs> because it's still COVID protocols. We're not gonna try and like high five no, or gonna,
1: we can't We're gonna go like this. You see, this is distance. real. This is real. Yep. <laughs> but uh, we're in the same city. We're in the same room, Africa's a Country Talk. We started in June last year, and we've done 45 episodes. This is the 46th one. And this is not only the first time we're doing the show Correct. together, it's the first time we are meeting. and cloud. Which is also
0: something about Africa. It's actually, this is, this is, this is a, a kind of something about Africa's a Country in which you, historically, this this is what this website does. It's a whole bunch of people that have worked together that never they've never met often in person. they I've worked with people as copy editors, as senior editors, as you know, just people, people as contributors, contributing editors, editorial board. And often I've never met them. I would meet them sometimes at a conference, et cetera. So this is great. There was so a weird, we were like, we were like, hold up, we 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 know each other so well, kind of, yeah. but we've never met.
1: I was very interested to see just how tall Sean was. Because <laughs> the entire time the image of Sean had formed in my mind, is I could discern, I was like, again, okay, this guy's at least above average height for South so Africans. No, 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 you definitely <laughs> are above average height. I just had to discern to what extent. I was like, are you super tall? Are you. Tall, I'm, I'm not
0: not super yeah, tall. You're tall. You're tall, but you're not super tall. No, I'm not. I'm not. Uh, I'm not the two meters yet. I'm not six feet. <laughs> yet. I think my son will be taller than six feet. Yeah. But yeah, I'm just a regular person. I'm also from the Cape Flats. The, I've had some fun times this week where um, there are people who would ask me for something, or I, I'm I'm asking for something, and they they would say. Actually, I, I went for a COVID test, and oh. I hope this, this the nurse or I don't know if she was a health Health practitioner is listening because I don't want to misrepresent her. But we, I got into the uh, a relative um, tested positive for COVID, so I had to go and get a get a test. So first I went for a rapid. Um, shout out to my to my friend Herman Wasserman, who's been a nice host with his family. So he went with me. I got there, um, and when I when I got into the inter- and kind of registered, I sat down, I waited, I went into the room. And I don't know how it came up. She said to me, what is your name? And I think she may have said, where did you go to high school? She said, oh, are you, you, you say you're from Cape Town? Can you say, aware? <laughs> I was like, aware? <laughs> and then she said, what high school did you go to? Um, but there was a, I could see that she was like, nah, you're not from Cape Town. I'm like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm, like, I'm like, So I'm just trying to, I just spoke a little bit of the local um, sort of colloquial Afrikaans. So yeah, I'm, I, it's been nice being back in South Africa, being home. We were joking before the program with Alex Hodges, one of our guests today, about um, eating kusistas. uh Kusistas, and there was a little thing here about uh, We're not going to go into that today. Kusistas versus cook sisters, which is two different kind of things. Uh, but I was having kusistas. I was having a proper braai, like a barbecue, a South African barbecue, and somebody somebody wrote on Instagram when I posted a photo of it, uh, where, where are the baked beans? I was like, Come on, leave me alone! But in any case, um, it's really great to see. Well, um, I don't know. Is there anything you want to say about the fact of meeting? Yeah, apart from height and other stuff.
1: I just want to. I just want to mention the space we're in right now. Yes, yes, we are yes, 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 yes. Being yeah. gr- gracefully hosted by the Alternative Information Development Centre, which is a think tank based in Cape Town, started in 1996 as South Africa's post-democratic transition began and it's a think tank which is devoted to the work of thinking of political alternatives crafting the policy visions that can realize those alternatives and linking up with social movements and trade unions that are organizing for those alternatives on the ground so it's been doing incredible work throughout the years Uh, the alternative information development center if you don't know is the think tank that supports amanda magazine which you can see On your screen there, Amandla is a local South African left-wing publication, which Africa as a country has a partnership with. You can see the latest issue there, which is devoted to the labor movement, questioning whether or not it's lost its way, whether or not the trade union form still serves the way labor is organized in contemporary South Africa. And we've got a partnership with them. We republish articles from the magazine. And yeah, the AIDC is an incredible, incredible group of people, an incredible think tank, um, and one of those organizations that have been integral to progressive politics in South Africa for the last 25 or so years. And we're in their wonderful library, in their offices here in the Observatory in Cape Town. There's lots of great books here. They're both catching our eyes as we stream, as well as supporting our computers as we stream. So just shout out to the Alternative Information Development Center, and uh, hopefully, this is something we can do more frequently and be in this beautiful space again.
0: Yep. So we've got a lot to talk about today. We have, um, we were gonna, we were just gonna wrap about these things but we told in the end, it might be useful, um, to bring in two people to join us for today for the show. And we have, we're going to talk about two big subjects. One is we in South Africa, and it's been for me, especially coming here, uh, the day I, um, so hold on, two topics, one South Africa and the second one we're gonna talk about the Euros. <laughs> the Euros. What do you say? The Euros? The, the Euros, yeah. The, the Euros. My is the, the European Championship, which is from the other night, won by Italy, uh, with England in the final. And so first, first we can talk about South Africa and Alex Hodge, who is um, part of AIDC. Um, and what is Alex doing now these days? She's a, a graduate student. We'll let her tell us. And then we have uh, Peter Dwyer, who's a activist, an academic, um, socialist. Well, let, I mean, let, let Peter maybe bring out all the nuances of what his own politics are, but he'll join us later on, and um, he'll he'll talk to us about the, the kind of the politics of football uh, and, the, and the European Championships, um, because I know Peter has his own particular relationship with the english national team um but yeah so we'll we'll we'll, soon we'll bring on alex but just by introduction i just wanted to mention that so i came to south africa um basically the day that Ramaphosa announced that south africa was going to go to level four that night i was (laughs) i was getting on a flight so i i was waiting all day to see whether or not things would change and i was a little worried that they might say that they're shutting down the country but instead they just went for level four I'm fully vaccinated, so I arrived here, um, and then by the the first week was great. But the beginning of the second week, um, I moved to a friend's house. Um, but around that time, I think my brother got infected with COVID, and so I then took a test on Friday. He took a test on Saturday. I tested negative, which is probably more proof that the vaccine is working, and he tested positive. So he started isolating. So I took another I took both tests. First I took the the rapid and then I took the PCR yeah. test. But the point about just mentioning the test, I also learned a little bit about how difficult and cumbersome it could be to take a test in South Africa. Because in the US now, even though the US doesn't have a public healthcare system, with COVID, they turn the whole system into a public healthcare system. And you could you could you can take a COVID test as long as you make an appointment at any public health facility. Like your local city council, it's health department, you can go in there and take a COVID test as many times as you want, and then they just they started vaccinating people. Um, I would say roughly at the end of February, and I was fully vaccinated from the end of March. So you know, to sort of come here, it, it's been an interesting experience of sort of stepping stepping back and sort of having to realize that there was still there's still a lot that needed to be done around um, uh, vaccinations. But yeah. Um, People generally, I feel, are careful here, wearing masks. Um, we, you know, we 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 make sure that before we do the program, we go through a bunch of protocols to ensure that we don't that nobody gets infected and so on. Um, but yeah, it's it's been an interesting experience. But here's the part, and then we'll bring on Alex, and maybe Will wants to say something else too before we get to Alex. But the other part of the story was uh, Jacob Zuma. The the Wednesday after I arrived, so I think I arrived on the. On the Sunday, the Wednesday, the Monday—sorry, on the Wednesday, uh, Jacob Zuma. There was this whole like standoff, like um, almost like a TV drama. Will he? Will won't he? And he um, uh, finally—well, the question is whether he gave himself up or whether he was pressured. But he went to jail um, essentially, unlike I would say in the early hours of Thursday morning, and he's been in jail ever since. And then some of his supporters, they decided to uh, protest to ask that he be released as if the president of the country has a, the right to intervene in the legal process. Um, and that's now morphed into um, a basically looting um, of private businesses in mainly two parts of the country, uh, KwaZulu-Natal, uh, not just in, in the big cities, but I understand also in a lot of the small towns. And then in some parts of Gauteng province, which is around where Johannesburg is. So essentially in parts of two of South Africa's nine provinces, um, there's, been, there's been a lot of looting. And so there's, people are trying to understand this. Is this about Zuma, is this is it something else? Um, I think I read something earlier today that said, probably the best answer is to is that there is no one answer. It's inconclusive. Um, but we're curious to hear from people who watch politics here. As I said, I'm just visiting, so I'm not going to pretend to know everything. I'm just learning. Uh, I did learn that like Twitter is not the way to figure this not out. Not at all. <laughs> not all. <laughs> like I'm not going to learn anything from Twitter. Unfortunately, and I, I hope Will says something about this, and so does Alex, I think that there's an absence. The left is, I, I haven't seen much from of left-wing voices and it might be that the left is being marginalized within south africa's public sphere in fact somebody asked me right when i got here and i phoned up a friend and he said can you figure out for me what is going on with the public sphere like who's you know what's the who's got the loudest voice who's the most influential because he lives here, but he told me that it was very difficult for him to figure that out in any case this is just a setup that we There's, if you watch TV, there are these dramatic scenes of people um, breaking into fact, into malls, malls are burning. Um, Again, you know, uh, this is, I'm not, uh, at this point, I'm not trying to say what my own opinions are about these things, I'm just describing it. Anyway, Will.
1: I mean, what you've described is correct. And from the moment Zuma was arrested, his political allies and his family took to Twitter basically to incite. So they sent out these clarion calls, calling on their supporters to shut down the country, to demand Zuma's immediate release, and to effectively make the country ungovernable. This is, evidence is there. It's on social media. It's not only his family and political allies, but the whole ecosystem of online profiles which support Zuma and the political project that he represents, the so-called radical economic transformation faction of the African National Congress, whose main goal effectively is to, to use radical rhetoric as a pretense for corruption, for creating pathways, for accumulation, for and the, and the ascent of the black bourgeoisie in South Africa. Their problem is that the South African economy still remains dominated by South Africa's white minority, whereas they feel like it should be dominated by the black capitalist class. So there was incitement online. There was protest that began over the weekend, which had very clear a very clear character of being about support for Zuma. There were trucks burnt down on the N3 leading to Durban, which is the national freeway through which most uh, freight vehicles travel. And so this over the weekend was very clearly violence that was being coordinated by Zuma supporters. But then something started to happen at the beginning of this week, and then I think this is when things get a little bit more complicated, is that the riots developed a mass character and was not only sort of, a matter of trying to cause commercial disruption, uh, but being rooted in communal outbreaks of, of, of rioting and looting. So as Sean was saying, supermarkets being raided, uh, food being appropriated and distributed amongst people. And so there's very much an underlying condition of mass poverty, mass desperation, mass joblessness which has caused people to to participate in the looting, so as to access the means of survival, because an important thing to understand in South Africa, and this is something that publications like Amandla and Africa as a Country write about all the time, is that South Africa is an unviable society. It's got an immense concentration of wealth at the top layers, completely insufficient, state support and during the pandemic that's been the case as well so as you were saying level four was announced and despite harsher lockdown restrictions falling into place the states announced no support whatsoever for the the mass of of poor in south africa more than i think half the population live below the poverty line unemployment rate is approaching 50 percent and this has been the case from the beginning of the pandemic Um, and So such conditions are dire for the majority of people. Uh, They are really dire. They are really intense and tragic. And so this would be something that provides proximate cause to not only participate in looting, so as to access goods that you need to survive, but as an explosion of outrage, as an explosion of despair, as an explosion of of hopelessness. And it's continued and it's continued. And there's a question of to what extent is this something that is coordinated by Zuma loyalists in order to bring disruption so as to force through uh, political concession from the Ramaphosa administration in favor of Zuma. And to what extent is this something that is organically developing, building a mass character and spontaneously erupting. And some instances, it looks like it's the latter, i.e. This is mass rioting that is emerging organically based off conditions of deprivation. And in some instances, it looks like it's being coordinated by nefarious forces behind closed doors, just given how effective that coordination is given, for example, footage of whole warehouses being attacked and see fleets of cars surrounding those warehouses, more than 20,000 right. people on site in order to to, to, to raid these goods. Um, and so, of course, the question really is, what is to be done? Is this something that can be redirected and channeled into a broader mobilization against austerity for the provision of public services and for the state to roll out mass support, such as through a basic income grant? Uh, or is this something that might just get more and more reactionary? Might it devolve into intercommunal racial violence. There's been a massive reaction, uh, for example, from small business owners, middle-class South Africans who have armed themselves and said that we're not gonna let looters pass through our neighborhoods. It's been heavily racialized footage of some squatter camps in certain cities being burnt down um, by community members. Uh, and there's also the possibility that this might evolve into xenophobic violence. So there's a whole bunch of vectors that could influence this in any given direction. And it's hard to know what's happening as the situation is extremely dynamic and it's hard to know what is to be done. So to ask the question of what is to be done, maybe we bring on Alex so that she could tell us exactly what is up, no pressure. Uh, But we're of course extremely fortunate to have Alex on the show again. Alex Hotz is a recurring guest on AC Talk. I think she's currently a UCT master student, and working at, at Ilrig here in Cape Town. So, Alex, yes, welcome to the show. Obviously, the situation in South Africa is extremely tense, extremely confusing. And fluid. And fluid. Uh, what's your sense of what's going on?
2: So, please don't expect any answers from kidding. me.
1: We're not kidding. We don't expect No, that's fine, no, that's fine. Yeah,
2: I think I'm also trying to process, you know, what's happening in the country as it unfolds. Um, You know, in the Western Cape, um, there's nothing um, happening in terms of the protests that we're seeing in KZN and in um, Gauteng. Um, So that's very different. And it would be interesting to see the trajectory um, of the protests and whether they go um, and spread out the provinces um, of the country. Um, Because if it is the case that people are protesting around unemployment, poverty, inequality, et cetera, then we have a lot to be mad about. And it's affecting. The majority of people throughout the country. So I mean, this morning, as I was, you know, like what, going through Twitter, which I think in some ways has been, um, I think, useful in some instances to kind of see and hear the tone of, um, of some South Africans about what's happening. Um, you just see, you know, middle-class South Africans at half past six in the morning in Cape Town running as if, you know, um, nothing is happening. Um, so that's also very telling to me. Um, I mean, there's a lot happening within the protests. And I'm, I sent William a video earlier, which was very horrific, um, of small business owners, who happen, I don't know if it just happens to be Indian people, but burning down townships um, in Peter Maritzburg. In KZN, um, I think it's important that, you know, 27 years later, racial tensions amongst um, South Africans still, like, is really, really high. And a lot of Black people in this country are saying, you know, We're not only um, we're we're exploited by people who are who have been um, oppressed under apartheid um, with us, Um, yeah. And so those are obviously contested um, uh, discourses. But I also think like the question. There's been a lot of condemnation of looting um, Mm -hmm. online on TV. I think. The media is playing an incredibly difficult and divisive role, in my view, um, with what's happening in the in the country. So, you can hear from the way in which um, some journalists and presenters are engaging with people that they're interviewing that it's really charged. It's not, you know, just mm-hmm. reporting. Um, I mean. I, and you, you know, you get a lot of condemnation around looting. Um, I've started to maybe change the word to liberating, um, because one of the things that I took from, um, and it's been very clear to me from Ramaphosa's speech yesterday, is that instead of dealing with unemployment and inequality, listening to the demands around the basic income grant even the 300 rand grant, even the grant that supports um, women and caregivers in this country has been um, taken away. So instead of dealing with those things that can relieve and give some relief to South Africans, he is talking about we must protect property. I think if you could count how many times the word property, you know, Came up, and it's clear um, what we're seeing. You know, forty-five, more than forty-five people have been killed in the last couple of days, and I, I you know, you are seeing that capital, property, etc., is what is um, said to be needing to be protected most, um, and. Um, The sentiments are if people continue in the ways in which they are, so the blame shifts, right, to people who are participating in protests, that if protests continue, then our economy is going to go um, into, you know, the worst it's ever been, et cetera. Instead of talking about, while under the ANC and under Ramaphosa's leadership, we have seen unspeakable um, austerity that has meant that they've cut back on spending in terms of health care, spending in terms of education, spending in social services, all of those things, um, which, which I think is central to trying to kind of understand um, maybe the mass levels of participation Um, in the protests. Um, But I also don't think that it's useful to just say that Zuma isn't necessarily a factor. I think
1: um,
2: it was definitely one spark. But I think in a situation which is just getting worse and worse, I think people can see that what's happening elsewhere in the world, people are being vaccinated. There's some type of normality that people are returning to. And that's not the case in South Africa. We're going from lockdown to lockdown. People are losing um, income and jobs every time we go from level five, level four, level three. Um, So I I think there are large things at play. But I also think... um, There are clearly lots of unresolved political issues that are coming to the fore. I even think, you know, questions around the national question, questions around whether to diagnose um, South Africa, how to diagnose what the problem is, you know, post-1994. So I think um, there's lots of there's lots at play. And what is very telling is there's lots of contradictions. I think middle class South Africans are um, showing a lot of um, problematic politics and tendencies in terms of how they're characterizing people who are protesting or looting. I would would
0: say, I know you you say middle class South Africans. I think often if you, again, using South African like racial language, it's often also working classes. If you want to say in other races, like it's not just middle-class. There's an interesting way in which apartheid, I suppose, the legacy of apartheid has resulted, I'm going to be blunt, let's say colored people or working class that live exactly the same conditions with the same kind of deprivation, um, as the people who eventually feel, okay. I have nothing to lose, right? If even if the if the police lock me up, then I'm then then I can actually get a shower, and and a warm bed. You know, I'm not stuck in my in my uh, little you know small. So I'm just saying, like there's all. It's not necessarily just the middle class. I think there's also other. There's there's even within the same class there are people who who would who would condemn other people who were in the same situation as them.
3: And
2: one
1: thing to important... No go ahead.
2: No, I think that's an important point. And just to also say that in Cape Town in the Western Cape, um in the height, I think it was level five or level four. Um you had similar situations here, not to the scale that it is in KZN or Gauteng, but that was you know that was also Um, around people being hungry. So I think there was an interesting um, new frame article. But before I get there, I wanted to... um, I think the point that you're making about also, which speaks to racial tensions within the country, I can't imagine what some of the sentiments must be from um, certain... uh, So, in I mean, one of the conversations that have been happening is... Um, People can understand when supporting Palestine that there is a particular enemy, you are using particular means to challenge that enemy. But in South Africa, it's racialized and weaponized in a particular way where you're seeing tremendous anti-black racism from people who would understand the use of violence or whatever or protest action, etc., in in the context of Palestine or other kinds of um
0: or Black Lives Matter.
2: They yeah.
0: can yeah. understand. No, that I mean
2: there's so many the contradictions exactly. Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. The same some of the same middle classes who would who would put on their Twitter profiles about the death of a black person in America, which we should in the United States, would literally cheer on the police, not just during this looting now, but he's, you know, since I would say since 94 and onwards, I mean, Tatani, remember Andres Tatani, who was murdered, like live on TV, Marikana, where people talked about the, the miners were high, or they were, they had used Muti, you know, like making them irrational, the very same middle classes who would, condemn the police violence somewhere else in the world, the racism in England against football players or whatever, cannot make that connection in their own country.
1: And I think what that what that speaks to, Alex, you were mentioning this point earlier about how, when you look at the way traditional media is covering the story, it's incredibly charged. And I think that one thing that is a mainstay of South African political life is the way in which the black working class is pathologized, as you were saying, Sean, They're understood as possessing these essential characteristics of being violent, barbaric, savage-like, and it's part of the structure of South African capitalism, which is the bizarre thing to me is that no one in the media, no one in the public sphere ever gravitates towards the conclusion that what we're witnessing now is a completely unviable system crumbling because what South African capitalism Which is inherently racialized, has done from its founding moment, has been creating this population which is superfluous, which can be discarded, which you expel to the fringes. And the way South African life is modeled is that for most people's existence, their conscious life, there is always a population that exists all the way over there, and the only time it is ever legible to you is if they are cleaning your house, if they are, you know, selling you something. There's, you know, that's the way South Africa and works. And then you
0: complain about them, the, it, the amount you have to pay them. Exactly,
1: so then when there's this, I think when there's this explosion of, of anger and outrage, most people's reaction is that kind of shock and paranoia mm-hmm. because this population is something you've never engaged with, something that is completely uh, illegible to you. And, and so I guess, I, I don't know what the point I'm trying to make is, but I think it's this, which is that I think what I, a lot of these process to me signify, notwithstanding, as you say, that there might be these elements that have contributed to them happening now rather than on another occasion, is a population of people that saying we want recognition, we want to assert ourselves as being visible, as having a stake in the future of South Africa and not as a group that is just going to quietly and passively accept our super exploitation, we've had enough.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think, um... There are so many things that have been, you know, I'm thinking about just even how quiet or, you know, if we're talking about, people are talking about unemployment, for example, um, I just saw one of the comments about how the left have been completely marginal. You know, one would expect that, you know, the labour movement would be able to or would want to respond or play a role in, you know, in the last couple of months, where, in a, um, where for example, unemployment amongst youth is at 74% um, in the country. Um, young people make up such a large part of the country's population at the moment. But the labour movement and the left actually have been completely marginal um, in their response not only to these protests, but to um, what's happening in the country over the last couple of months. Um, I mean, I think, it, and that's also very telling. I think some, some people, and it's also not, I think the question around revolution or what's going to happen in the country to challenge racial capitalism um, as people are experiencing it here is not going to be as neat and as pretty um, as people are, are wanting it to be. And so the question for me that I've been asking myself over the last couple of days is, what role um, does the left play? What do we, What what is to be done in these, in, in the protests? How do you? Where, where are people being organized? How are people being organized? Are people being organized? Where are the, what are the discussions? those? I mean it, it's hard to kind of even think about um, you know what to do. And I think the labor movement in some instances could have an important um, role to play.
0: Can I ask a question? Because um, we were talking before the show, um, and I, I kind of, the reason I was sort of pausing is I wrote down to Wellington, I'm going to ask this now. Um, so there was a quote actually that. that um, uh, Ayanda I Kota. That by Ayanda Kota, which we we're going to put on the screen in a minute. Um, and it's a quote about uh, if if you, yeah, that those struggling for emancipatory politics can't support struggles that are organized on tribalists, male chauvinists, an ethnic basis everything that we are opposed to as a people that are struggling for emancipatory politics I mean that, you know that's very that's very straightforward right yeah and in uh, it, there's in in the same interview in the same interview I think he said something about that the edward zumas the radical economic transformation proud they don't stand for the people on a principle basis their aim, aim is only to dethrone the current regime so they can do this to do the same loot my question is really the, the, the thing that baffles me is, like, what the thing that's going to emerge, because if, as far as I'm concerned, I think the ANC project is a dead end. They, they, can, they can keep governing, but it's essentially electionism. So if if an emancipatory or uh, a politics that's going to emerge that, that could organize these working class people, right, for a political project, it cannot also fall out of thin air it has to be like in concrete struggles and the only the eff i think was built on the on on a on an actual right there was there was uh, Marikana, that i think was what gave us the eff um and we know the eff project and we've spoken to you about this before on the show that there are people that are invested in the eff genuinely because they think the eff Presents a, a, an emancipatory project. I think a lot of people would agree with me that that's not the case anymore. So we have to look and see where 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 do we see? I, I don't think we can give up completely. So one 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 suggestion I would make, and then I want to we'll hear your reaction. In the United States, the argument was that Occupy happened in 2011. And that initially a lot of people there said, oh, Occupy, it was a failure. It didn't amount to, not, to much. What it amounted to was a couple of people got some book, book contracts. Other people got a TV show maybe or something. Similarly, I think with initially with Black Lives Matter, it quickly dissolved into recrimination and arguments about, uh, the, it became NGOs. I think DeRay McKesson ended up running for mayor, I think, of Baltimore on a platform that was about charter schools. So the initial assessment of those movements was it wasn't going to amount to anything. But then by 2016, I would say, you saw the emergence of, uh, of course, we saw terribly in the United States at Donald Trump, but what they did have was Alexander Ocasio-Cortez as an electoral project. They had Bernie Sanders's. Brilliant run, right, in the Democratic primary, and it was only the party that stopped him. The party had to use the the systems, the, the, the you know, the electoral system, if you want, of the, their party system to get rid of him. Correct. Um, and since then, you've seen Cory Bush. Uh, I forget her name, but there's a new mayor of uh, of, of Buffalo who describes himself openly as a socialist. There has been you know, Jamal Bowman, I could, you know, I could go on and on. I'm just saying, like, they've seen something there. So if I, let me give you one example. Could something, was there, is there something left the remnants of the student movement of, we always come back to them because I think that's the last kind of major organized political movement that had, I think, some coherent critique of some kind of post apartheid South Africa. Maybe we shouldn't even talk about them, but... Is there something that we could see or feel that that is, in other words, that's not out of thin air, but it is real, and could provide the impetus for something that can, because we have to. Everybody says, "Oh, this thing is a proud." You know, what's happening in South Africa is 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 tragic. It's devastating. Um, it's horrible to watch. Uh, uh, this cannot be, the solution cannot be a solution about secure a securitization like security bringing the army bringing the police or the other one which is which is that it will it will eventually become a kind of a racial racial violence. So what what is this other thing that is there is there is there something there? Even Will could answer if he wants, but you got to go first for me. Where do we see this? Is it, is it, there, is it there? And where is it?
2: Um. <clears throat> That was a lot so i'm gonna try and <laughs> so i think um i was feeling very hopeless yesterday um and i was speaking um to a dear comrade mazibuko Jaha um yesterday um and i was given a little sense of hope and possibility um and i think that sense of hope and possibility is not something that exists within a political party in this country at the moment, um, and I think perhaps what we should stop focusing on is electoral politics and rebuilding a left um, in South Africa and a left from below, a left that you know we have to re we have to you know, nothing is as it was. So this idea that, you know, we can organize ourselves in the way it was in the 80s or the 70s or the 90s, it's not. And we have to go back to, I'm, I'm talking like I was there, but there has to be a different way in which we're organizing ourselves. And I think the point um, that Kamala Yanda makes around not organizing around reactionary politics, organizing an emancipatory politics that is anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-capitalist, is really fundamental. And I think there is potential um, for that. But I also don't think that it is as clean and as cookie cutter um, as we only organize with. I think that bubble for me has burst, um, unfortunately. I think we have to find comrades where they are at. And it is in struggle that we are going to win um, comrades and, and, and build as long as, you know, foundationally in the way in which we are organizing and building is based on emancipatory principles and politics um and around collective care I think that's really will be fundamental um and so I was you know as I saw something something popped up and so part of you know what's happening at the moment I do think one of the things the left has to do is to reject um the South African um defense force um being sent to the streets of South Africa I think um It is going, and as we've seen reports today, it is going to be a disaster. We're going to see more people killed, more violence coming from the state. It has never been a machinery that has defended people, it has been a machinery that has defended the state and property. Um, And so, the other thing is, it has to be a politics. That we are developing that counters remnants of and continued the shift um, that we see um, to the right of many um, South Africans um, in the minority in this country who have not, who didn't stop organizing themselves in 1994 um, who were seeing arm themselves. In Um, in Durban, um, in other parts of the white suburban enclaves, um, which is really, really scary and dangerous.
1: Thanks, Alex. Um, yeah, I think you make incredibly important points there. I think the only thing I'd like to add, uh, and I think you've 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 kind of suggested the what is to be done for us already, but I think related to your point that we need to think about new ways of organizing what I think shows me a slight glimmer of hope from this recent unrest is seeing more and more South Africans ordinary South Africans who reflect openly and honestly on the fact that South Africa as the current social arrangements go simply doesn't work I think a lot of people are slowly starting to realize to certain and varying degrees that you simply cannot have a country like ours that has such an extreme concentration of wealth and such an extremely widespread level of indigence. You can't have a society that has a township and right next to it, the richest square mile in in Africa. And I think that whichever political project that we craft in the embers of this unrest. Who knows how long it'll go for? Who knows what will come next? I think it needs to present transformation in South Africa. Not necessarily, I think, as an explicitly left advance. We don't need to say we're struggling for socialism. That's the inevitable goal, absolutely. But I think it just needs to say what we need to do is create a society that at the very least works, that is sustainable, That Supports the majority of people and provides them with healthcare, provides them with transport, provides them with education. And this should be available to everyone. It should be something that exists regardless of your class position, but is based on an idea of citizenship where if you want to have citizenship beyond meaningfully, beyond just having the rights to vote, if you want to create meaningful citizenship, then meaningful citizenship comes through social provision, comes through providing people. All the means that they need to flourish individually and collectively um so obviously a discussion we'll keep talking about alex thank you so much for appearing on the show today to help us make sense of, of everything um and we look forward to the discussion happening yeah we offline. could go we could
0: go on i mean with you whenever yeah. we invite you whenever we invite you we always feel like uh, you should just be like a regular, a regular. <laughs> come on the show regularly because you we, we never stop talking. But thank you again, Alex. This is, this is great. It would have been lovely to have, you, to have you in the same room with us, but hopefully soon everybody here is going to be vaccinated and we can do that. So our next guest is um, an old friend. He's never been on the show, but he's a, he's a, he's a longtime friend of mine, actually. I think probably older than, than Will is. Um, Peter Dwyer, who is a teaching fellow at the University of Warwick Um, And the other part of Peter's life is that he's also a big football fan. But we're going to start by asking him about his impressions about what's going on in South Africa. And by way of introduction, I just want to add, I actually met Peter when he first came to South Africa in the late 90s when he was researching the kind of the sort of a biographical study of trade unionists. Like what had happened to the trade unionists of the the anti-apartheid era, you know, when South Africa transitioned into a liberal democracy. And I know Peter then ended up working in South Africa for a long while at the Center for Civil Society at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. So he's not, you know, he's been following South Africa, particularly in that province. So he knows about the housing struggles, the struggles around poverty. Um, So maybe, Peter, I don't know, you watching this from Britain, you watching this, you know, play out. What are your what are your impressions about what's going on here, what this crisis is about and, you know, how how we can get out of this? (laughs)
3: <laughs> That's an easy question, isn't it? How'd you get out of <laughs> Um It was not, back, 1997, you know. 1997 we met, Sean. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I even had hair back then.
0: <laughs> you did, you did.
3: I did, yeah. Um, Look, I mean, I think uh, you covered a lot of it there, what uh, yourselves and Alex said. I mean, obviously some of it is Zoomers supporters, but I think they're kind of marginalised and not as big as I think he thought he was. Um, so I think that side of it may sort of it out. But I think what really the the protests are, are is really pent up anger and frustration since, uh, you know, going back what, nearly 30 years now with the, the failure of what was called the transition and all the problems that still, you know, dog Dog South Africa, you know, the the structural unemployment that's, what, 50, 60 percent, it's even worse now than it was in the sort of early noughties. I mean, you know, people are hungry, people are tired, people are bitter, people are frustrated. I think that's what it reflects. And um, I think as Alex said, you know, it's not about looting, it's about liberating. Uh, People want to, you know, people need to feed their kids, feed their families. They still see, you know, predominantly white people owning and controlling all the wealth predominantly white people live in all the rich areas. Of course, they've been joined by a rich black elite. Um, you know, the ANC didn't take over Santon and take the wealth from the white people. The ANC leadership and their supporters went and moved to Santon. That's one of the greatest ironies. And, and that's another reflection of people's anger as well. Um, so I'm not surprised by it at all. Um, and you think, I think you have to take a long view of it and put it in the context of what hasn't happened in South Africa since the ANC got to power. And of course, you know, the Zuma corruption scandal is a touchstone for all of that. Um, but corruption, you know, I don't think corruption is the issue. It's poverty and mass unemployment and lack of delivery is the issue in South Africa. Corruption is a, is a component part of that, if you like. It's a spin-off from it. And the fact that the ANC are sadly not held accountable uh, either by the electorate. Uh, and, in, and in one way, this is the way black people hold them to account. Is that you know they're going to take things. If the if the rich black elite are seen to take things along with the whites, then poorer people are going to take things when they get the chance. It's the same everywhere. You know there were riots in Britain in 2011, and uh, not long after austerity, um, in predominantly working class areas, it was multiracial, and people called it a form of liberation. You know the the people who were who were taken from the shops said, you know. We're taking what belongs to us because they see other rich people with it uh, who don't work as hard as others, who don't suffer employment and recession. So, you know, that's how I see it, really. Can you ask me an easier question now? (laughs)
1: Let's ask you an easier question because what's crazy about this past week is that all of this unrest in South Africa exploded during another major international event. uh, And we're happy (laughs) to talk to you about that. You're wearing a a T-shirt that says Forza. I wonder if that's a reference to that major international event. Uh, The Euros happened, the final was on Sunday and Italia, they won. And of course, I think a lot of people were thinking to themselves, well, there's a lot of awful happening in the world right now. And that awful would just be more awful if it went to England and it went home and we wouldn't hear the end of it for the next 100 years.
0: So. Uh for the next week, maybe but, even but, whatever.
1: <laughs> but I mean, is, is your t-shirt uh an ode to the Italians given their recent victory, or will you stand up and is <laughs> say something else? What is, uh, the, what yeah. is a t-shirt? Ah, ah there, we right, there you go. No, it's, it's a it's
3: a it's a play to the internationalism of Liverpool and their uh, many European Cup exploits and victories. Uh, but it's also yeah, it's my way of um a little ode to the victory of the Italians, which I uh, really celebrated in many ways. I mean, part of me, in some respects, wanted the English football team because of what they've done. Their anti-racism, their fighting against poverty, their support for the National Health Service—they've been an inspiring team um, in many respects, in a way that no other English team ever has. And they're very, a very diverse, multicultural team. Over half of the squad. Uh, have parents or grandparents who are from the African or Caribbean or Irish diaspora or from those countries themselves. So, you know, it's a very multicultural diversity. So in that sense, you know, I wanted those lads to win. But of course, I can never support England as both an internationalist, a socialist and a Liverpool fan, someone from Liverpool, because there's a long history of uh, resentment to the British and English states as well, you know, and, um, Look, it's not everyone in Liverpool or all Liverpool supporters, but it certainly is like that for me and, and, and for others as well. I think this was an interesting Euros. I mean, what you've
1: just described now about how this team was multicultural, it's diverse, it's got these awesome, awesome individuals like Marcus Ratchford who put pressure on Boris Johnson to reopen the school breakfast programme. Uh, this Euros was, was interesting because it was... A football tournament that felt extremely political. So I remember Gideon Rachman wrote an article as the tournament started for the Financial Times when he was just describing his efforts to try and attend a match and the fact that the players knelt, there were loud boos. I think it was England v. Scotland. There was uh, tense political air in the stadium given the rise of Scottish nationalism in the wake of Brexit. So there's all of these um, political influences and overtones uh, dominating the, the tournaments. Do you think that's I mean, how how political do you think this Euros was? Is that an overstatement? Or do you think it really was a tournament that had a an expressly political character?
3: Oh, no, no you're absolutely right, William. Uh, in fact, it could even be an understatement. I mean, this is undoubtedly one of uh, the most political Football event of modern times for all sorts of reasons. Uh, But primarily, the reason why this Euros was so political was down to Black Lives Matter. It's as simple as that. If there was no Black Lives Matter, there'd be no taking the knee. If there was no Black Lives Matter, there'd be no debate about anti racism, you know, all around the world, but particularly in the US and the UK. And if there was no Black Lives Matter, then, you know, there wouldn't be this whole post fallout of the racist abuse of some of the England players and it's forced the, a right wing, I'd say, racist government on the defensive in which you know, even some of the papers that support the government have highlighted the hypocrisy of Boris Johnson and the Home Secretary who's responsible for law and order, Pretty Patel, herself, ironically, the daughter of Asian immigrants from uh, Africa. Uh, con- it, you know, the hypocrisy of them has been condemned by the press, the Financial Times editorial today. Um, the Sun has hinted at it. The most right-wing, uh, racist paper in the UK, the Daily Mail, also um, all these right-wing xenophobic, anti-immigrant newspapers have pointed out, um, you know, that, that, that it's hypocr- hypocritical for Boris Johnson and Priti Patel to condemn the England players for taking the knee, and now suddenly they're, conde- they're condemning the racist abuse. And this has led to an absolute, incredible outpouring on social media mm-hmm. and in the mainstream press and TV about, um, you know, racism, anti-racism and things like that. I mean, one, you know, the best example really was from um, Tyrone Mings, a sort of, you know, mixed-enrich oh,
0: yeah. Yeah.
3: England player who put out an incredible um, tweet attacking Pretty Patel. And what he said was that, you know, Pretty Patel condemned the racism of uh, the attacks on the English players on social media uh, you know, for missing the penalties as well. Um, and then he turned around and said that, you know, how can you sort of um, talk about this when especially you've been, you know, lighting the sort of spark to racism by condemning the um, the taking of the knee? And the reason, you know, they take the knee, as, as, as the English players have pointed out, is because of racist abuse. If you then condemn that taking of the knee, how dare you, you know, then be shocked and feign, Fake disgust at uh, this racist abuse happening, and that's been incredible. I mean, you no, know, when as an England player, never mind the footballer, right. attacked the government, uh, the government ministers, okay, and the prime minister for being hypocrites about anti-racism. I mean, it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, there's been a massive politicisation of um, anti-racism, and it's really opened up an incredible debate. Um, and you know, this has been led in part by. The English players and you know the English team and, and and everything they stand for and it's incredible that it's directed not just against the sort of racist minority and it is a minority uh, who've abused the English players <clears throat> excuse me it's been directed at the government and right wing politicians I mean that's fantastic I mean it's absolutely brilliant but again if it wasn't for Black Lives Matters and the huge yeah. protests this wouldn't be taking taking place so. Absolutely, William. It's one of the most political, probably political sporting events in a very long time. And this debate will run and run.
0: I mean, the one thing that struck me was so the England lost the, the, the they lost the, the, the tournament, you know, the final. But in the process, uh, the politics that the team stood for, or is standing for, won, always winning. I mean, I'm not, it's, it hasn't won yet. But what I'm sure, you know, what you just described is kind of, uh, Suddenly, uh, Rashford released a statement, I think, where he where he talked about, I'm not apologizing for who I am, that I'm a black man in Britain, and that and I'm from a particular place. You have Tyron Mings going after Priti Patel. Like, and now this, as you said, that what they represent is now almost not controversial anymore. Because you, you and I would like for you to say something about that. For example, in the lead up to the tournament, there were black players were in the same squad, like for exa- I mean, you could. I would love for you to talk about this, like Raheem Sterling and the kind of abuse that he received, right? And he was the player that got them to the final. So it's fascinating, like, how he gets into the final. He, he wasn't that great in the final. Three black players are the ones who kind of missed the crucial penalties. And normally, and this was, I remember on Twitter, people were saying, okay, now we're going to get all this abuse from the English fans, which did happen there was the kind of tepid response by the English FA. And I think people thought, you know, it's going to be, again, this is what it's going to be like. But it seems that there was, there's something else happened. We're now in this kind of moment where it looks like Black Lives Matter is now a normal, it's it's normal politics now.
3: Yeah, I mean, and, and that's the really incredible thing. I mean, this has been uh, building and building. I mean, just before... Um, England got through to the sort of out the the, uh, the group stages. A really interesting debate was starting to emerge about you know what this team represents and how they might represent a different England or the real England. Um, this was epitomised in an article by the former Liverpool player Jamie Carragher. Um, ironically, he writes in the Daily Telegraph, which is a it couldn't be you couldn't find a more pro-conservative party newspaper in Britain. In fact, we call it the Daily Tory Graph. Tory being the old um, nickname for the Conservative Party. But in that paper that was then, um, if you like, summarised by other mass-selling papers like the Daily Mirror, Carragher made some really, really interesting points. He talked about how, you know, um, this team have taken on issues which, um, you know, previous players and other other England squads never had. You know, Sterling had took on the racists, as Sean mentioned. Rashford had talked about uh, and, and made the government to take turn a U-turn on free school meals for kids like him, um, Jordan Henderson, the Liverpool captain, uh, had campaigned on behalf of the NHS and got players to donate money, and many of the England players were donating their earnings from the Euros to the NHS as well, and what Carragher said was was really interesting. He said that Southgate and his players have kind of come up with or constructed a, a, a new idea of what it might be to be the England team or what Englishness is. Um, and what Carragher pointed out to was he, he then criticised the politicians, Boris Johnson and Priti Patel and the like, who criticised the players for bringing social issues and uh, anti-racism to the fore if you like. And um, he said, now they're jumping on the bandwagon and trying to support them. And he attacked them for that and said they're hypocrites. So there was a, a, an attack on the politicians being hypocrites Prior to the final, there's now further attacks on them for them trying to show their anti-racist credentials when clearly they're not. And, and I think that's kind of unprecedented for sports players of such prominence. I mean, you know, Rashford and Sterling have got millions of followers on Facebook. I bet you have got more than the whole of the the conservative government put together. Um, you know, so they're putting this stuff out there and, you know, they're really embedding themselves in popular culture and putting across... An anti racist message, and that's just absolutely fantastic. And it's brilliant for, for anti racism and the anti racist movement. You know, what we've got to do now is turn that into more campaign and, and more activism. And in fact, we've got to turn it into further action. Now, just to give you a, a, another uh, sense of how deep this is going Sky Sports News, which is in part owned by Robert Murdoch and dominates obviously football in the UK. You know, on their main programmes last night, they were criticising the FA and the government for just putting out statements and saying they need to turn these statements into action. Now, the fact that Sky Sports News are saying that, again, is down to Black Lives Matters. You know, the, the fact that this whole debate is taking place at the level it is in such a, a wide forum of social media, the mainstream media, TV and the print media is all down to Black Lives Matters. And I think it's really, really important we don't lose that focus. Um, uh, because you know, that's really the, the the turning point was those protests last year. There's always been anti-racist movements, there's been, you know, some speaking out by Sterling and others, but the fact that the whole of the media are talking about, it, and I've got the I've got the front page of the Sun here, you know, the most racist. One of the most disgusting you bought uh, newspapers. You bought hold on, fans. hold on, hold on!
0: You actually bought the paper. You bought
3: the Sun. I, I only got a copy of it today, just for this program to show you. Because look, it's incredible.
0: I know uh, you, don't, but this but I know you don't buy the Sun. I know you don't buy the Sun. Of course, Why? I don't buy the Sun. But look at this.
1: Yeah, that's you. I would never expect to see that. Wow. Nobody did.
3: And, that, and yeah. that's really incredible. The, the fact that the Sun are now having to put three black payers saying, we defend you against racism on the front page is incredible. And that's a victory to Black Lives Matters and the anti-racist movement. Of course, many of us don't trust them and they're a false friend. This is a paper that's been constantly xenophobic, racist, anti-immigrant as well. So, you know, <clears throat> we won't be relying it's on them. By
0: the way, you should also add, and shameless when it came to Hillsborough, um, the Hillsborough oh, tragedy. Course, yeah. so this no, is no, not absolutely. a paper with good morals. Well, if you want with ethics, it's not a paper with ethics.
1: And sorry, while we're on on the Hillsborough, because this kind of takes me to the question I wanted to ask. Where, as far as race mm-hmm. in sport is concerned, it seems like we're turning a corner. Insofar as it's now, as you say, mainstream. In order yes. to to call out racism, in order to call out the transformation of the game the diversification of the faces representing the highest orders and codes and so on. But it's almost kind of thinking about this in relation to, for example, the nature of the game itself, football as a sport and how that is still dominated by moneyed interests, how the trend that's walking on seems to still be the commercialization in favor Uh, football capital and and whatever. I mean, this is happening the same year of the, the Super League proposal, which, thank goodness, fell apart, but that only gives us temporary respite, and we still think that football is going to continue to head on in this other direction. So, when it comes to football itself, at the end of a tournament like the Euros, I guess, one thing that was, I think, for me, another reinvigorating thing about the Euros is that People seem to believe in national sports again, whereas I think during the pandemic, a lot of people during the Nations League were starting to question it, say, no, the future of football is club football exclusively. But it seems like the Euros kind of vindicated the virtues of of national sports. So I just want to get your thoughts on, on the state of the game right now. What are the trends? Where does it look like it's going?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, football has been changing for many years in in the UK, um, and that, the sort of over commercialization of it and the television rights with Sky and others has brought lots of money into the game that has transformed it. Uh, it's transformed stadiums, they're better, uh, certainly at the, the higher-end level, you know, the grounds have been transformed. Uh, but, of course, that was in part a response to the Hillsborough disaster and, and uh, the legislation that said that, you know, everybody must have seating now in, in the bigger stadiums. But it is it is changing. Uh I I don't think it's changed for the better in some ways. Um you know the, the 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 hype and the commercialization. Ticket prices in the Premier League have gone through the roof, you know, way way above inflation. I mean, you know, there's been some great comparisons done about you know the equivalent prices of Things like, um, you know, a shirt today that uh, costs, you know, so much less now than uh, in comparison to a Premier League ticket than what they cost comparatively at the start of the Premier League in the 90s. So that's a really a terrible part that's pricing a lot of people out of the game. But it has to be said, you know, stadiums are so much better. Um, you know, the seating's better, they're safer. You know, the toilets, the facilities, I mean, they are just... Incomparable to when I was going, starting going a game in the late 70s and how we were treated in the 1980s. So, you know, there's two sides to that. Uh, I don't think it's, you know, it's either one or the other. It's it's rubbish or, you know, it's all brilliant. It's, it's, It's very, very mixed as everything always is. I think it I think, you know, this England team and what they've done politically and socially, Maybe a turning point. It's too early to say, and we all get carried away hoping for the next great turning point, don't we, in, in politics and analysis and things like that. It's still too early to say, but it's definitely captured the, the public's imagination. Um, I think the viewing figures were the biggest TV viewing figures since the death of uh, the funeral of Princess Diana. So it really galvanised England, and I suspect Wales and Scotland as well, although obviously many people there may not have wanted England to win. But, you know, you know, I've never seen so many black and Asian faces at England football matches ever when I constantly scan the crowd carefully in the TV. Um, I think that was really telling as well. Um, I've also never seen LGBT um, banners at England games uh, and many other football games for that matter. You know, the fact that um, Harry Keane wore an LGBT armband and of course he's, you know, he's a son of Irish immigrants is absolutely fantastic. So, you know, that's all changing a lot. Let's see how it happens, you know, and how it materialises a- afterwards. Uh, you know, there's still a minority of racist, bigots, homophobes, sexists in all clubs, including the big ones, uh, you know, including Liverpool. There's, you know, you can't romanticise any team or club, but it, it's definitely better, safer and more friendlier. But it still goes on. But I still think it is it is a hardcore minority. And those people after this competition, I think, will feel less welcome at every football ground in the country. And that undoubtedly is a better thing. Does it mean it will stop? No. Does it mean we have to stop in our And No. We have to push even harder now, um, you know, because we should take confidence from the Euros and the debate that's emerged out of it.
0: Yes, yes. Here's the last question then for you. You sound... I've never heard you speak about the English football team like this because I know, <laughs> I know you, you were... You know me. I don't. I don't support the English football team. Anyway, just I don't. I don't. I don't actually support any European football team. I just. I, I. We actually had a thing called the Africa's a Country Odds, where we would say we we watch a game and we would we would decide to support that team based on the history related to colonialism. These are all non-footballing reasons or how many players they have of African descent. England actually did well on the representation yeah. side. Every week, when every game, you'd have to sort of do this. But my question to you is. Knowing all of this, and I know you did not want England to win, so I'm not going to give away our secrets. But um, you sound like you you could be, and I remember you could be changed. Could you change your mind on on, on England, on the football team, on the football team, given what the team looks like, increasingly like? And I'm asking you this because I remember when I think it was 2006, maybe or 2010, Gary Young famously wrote a piece in the Guardian where he wrote about how he looked at his nephews and nieces, and they had bought England jerseys. And he was like, wow, I never supported England. I'm not going to support England. But these kids have a totally different relationship with this team. I mean, does that, would you just, the whole sort of this, I know you say it's a tension. It's not resolved. Um, but do you, could you support England? I you find
3: it personally very right. difficult to support England. Um, I. I I, really, you know, I can support what those lads done because, uh, you know, they've done amazing things off the pitch and on the pitch, you know, as, as a football team. Um, I, I thought Italy had win, actually. I just thought they were a better team anyway. But no, I, you know, personally, you know, being a Liverpool fan, the, the history of tension between Liverpool and Britain and the English, uh, Britain, the British state, if you like, politically, you know, the, the way Thatcher and them used that managed decline of Liverpool purposely politically you know it's a problem for me, and and as an internationalist and a socialist, I you know I, I, I don't, I, I'm not patriotic to any country. Um, you know, I am an internationalist. Um, but no, look, you've got to acknowledge and understand that the debate around what it is to be English and Englishness is changing. I don't think what they've achieved, I don't think uh, you know their multiculturalism, their diversity, their anti racism, I don't think that changes my ultimate argument about. Uh, the danger of, you know, patriotism and nationalism, be it English or South African for that matter. Um, But I think it changes the argument and how we approach it, you know, to simply can, you know, just write off England, England fans as all this, all that, and, you know, supporting England is just a waste of time or means your reactionary. That is foolish. It's, it's, it's not as simple as that. It never has been, but it's a lot more, uh, you know, a lot less simple than that now and more complex. And if the left don't, in, in England and Britain don't understand that, then they'll find it even harder to connect and build the anti-racist movement. So the England team and what they've done, who they are uh, on and off the pitch, but for me, predominantly off the pitch, have opened up the debate about anti-racism in a way that no other probably football team ever has. But again, my final point, this is all down to Black Lives Matters and huge protests in Britain and the US and elsewhere. And that's what we have to uh, be thankful for.
0: I think you're right if you I was just thinking while you were talking the French team used to be given this kind of attention and they were sort of written about in the same way and people also learned after a while that football wasn't enough like the, you know you couldn't you couldn't leave it to that because you know France I mean the struggle against racism the struggle for public services etc you know the, the the sort of the no the, the non-politics of Macron and you end up in France with now, somebody who's ostensibly a neoliberal because you, you that politics it has it has its own logic, so yeah, you know, it's it's more than that, yeah, definitely.
1: And so you I mentioned, go, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Go Just go
3: ahead. while you mentioned France, I mean I think you know the an important point there. Yes, it was brilliant the way the world media and the French media lauded the multiculturalism of that brilliant World Cup team, but actually since then, the far right and racism has got worse in France. So it's never as simple as what players do on the pitch or the fact that we've got a a diverse football team. You can't read things off so mechanically. Um, You know, there's a danger that a a real far right, racist um, president might get elected in France now. So how do you figure that out considering that way back, what was it, 96, they had one of the most multicultural diverse national teams. So, you know, it doesn't mean suddenly everyone in France is anti-racist. is anti is anti-racist. You have to constantly work at it and build it and use those opportunities when they open up.
1: Exactly. And in South Africa, we can say the same about the Springboks. I mean, we're speaking of social tensions. I remember in 2019, social tensions were at pitch. We won the World Cup. Suddenly they disappeared for a bit. Now they're back again. So sports is never enough. And thanks for those closing thoughts, Peter. And thank you for coming onto the show.
3: Brilliant, and thanks for having us. Thank Thank you. Yes, great,
1: great. And I think that brings us to the end of today's program. Uh, We went through that one trying to discuss quite a lot. Obviously, a lot of the discussion we had remains unresolved, but a real pleasure being able to do it in the same room (laughs) As Sean, we
0: we we lost that camera, but we have a tweet that we can put up to show you that we're not lying. We are in the, <laughs> we're same,
1: the same room. We're we on the uh, same. There I you could, go. We are I in could, the same room. I could turn my my computer <laughs> right now, and show you that Sean is in the same room as me. So we're we're not we're not, not messing lying. with you guys. This is not fake news. Not fake news. We're not spreading this information like a lot of South Africans are at the moment. We're truthful South Africans, and I think this is going to be the last. Program of the season. Of the
0: season. Yeah, wow. we're going to be
1: gone for a minute. Um, we're going
0: to a break for the summer. So well, for we so the winter, a... yeah. I'm, it's very cold here, by the way. <laughs>
1: hey, I'm not used to this anymore. We just don't have good indoor heating. That's the problem. So I, I think, think
0: the houses weren't constructed knowing that there's winter here.
1: Yeah, not knowing that there's winter, knowing that you know climate change happens. and
0: It's so cold. It's change. so cold. Sometimes you take a shower, and when the water hits your, your skin... It's like a shock on your skin. You know, <laughs> well, a your good... skin is like, yo, what is this? What is this? It's really crazy. It's really crazy.
1: So to you, our supporters, our fans, thank you so much for bearing with us all through all these episodes, 46 now. And thank you to tuning in every week. Thank you to Hanson and Engel who produces every week. All the shows. We got it. Yeah, every proper. Single I don't know show.
0: if she wants to come on camera. It's up to her. <laughs> i think she is yes yes yes, yes. Oh, uh, good. She's good. She's wonderful well done, her her.
3: Well, yeah. well done to from us
0: yeah from like those those remember those shows we did which were like they didn't really they, they were like no advertise we didn't advertise them yeah we were just it was testing so bad it work out like
1: always moving like that. I would go up to rural towns sometimes. and the internet wouldn't
0: work. It was, ugh, I can't even, yeah, it was crazy. We've
2: come a long way. We've
0: really come, come a long way. way. Yeah, you guys make it easy, so thank you. It's been uh, a pleasure, no, it's been it it, such you a pleasure. You make, you make it easy. So, so, so yeah. thank you so much, Anthony. Great, great show. Great show, um, thanks to
1: Alex Hotz, thanks to Peter Dwyer.
0: Excellent, yeah, um, Peter, Peter. Um, Peter. by the way, I want to give Peter props on air, I hope you're still listening when uh, actually I attended along with Peter and some other people, including my dad and my son, the the last football game that was played in Europe with a, with a, uh, a crowd. Full capacity with a full crowding. capacity crowd. It was uh, Liverpool at home in the second leg of their round of 16 game, I think it was, against um, Atletico Madrid. And after that, football was shut down. But um, Peter was one of the most generous hosts. I always tell him this. He's uh, he's like, what, we are like brothers, but we're from different places. Um, yeah, he was a great host. He took care of my dad, like just showing us around uh, and being great. So I'm doing this here, Peter, to properly thank you um, for always being for always being like a real brother. So in any case, great program for me. Program. Enjoy everybody. And this is the last show of the season. Last show
1: of the season.
0: No more Tuesdays for no a while. No more
1: Tuesdays for a while. From Cape Town, South Africa, in the same room. The wonderful officers of the Alternative Information Development Center. Thanks to Alex Hart, thanks to Peter Dwyer, thanks as always to Antoinette Engel. And thank you, Sean. I'm Mark Akusle. I'm